everyone. Welcome all of you once again to our series of expert interviews called Financially Speaking with established individuals in finance who've broken myths about the complications and have carved their own niches, making finance work for them. I'm delighted to have with me today Ramona Ortega, founder of My Money, My Future. Mi dinero, mi futuro. Lawyer, innovator, and personal finance expert. Ramona has been named one of 2020's most notable women in financial advice by Crane's Business and the 2019 Inspiring Women in Fintech. Ramona, it is so wonderful to have you here with us today. You've got, you know, so much experience behind you. Um, we read up about your profile and we found that, you know, you also have a JD in corporate law from Fordham University School of Law. So could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, your life? What has your journey been like and what sort of made you build My Money, My Future? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is obviously uh, very important to me, kind of where I came from and how I came about to become an entrepreneur, because it definitely was not a straight line. Um, so I am third generation Mexican-American. I grew up in California. Um, my mother in her early years was a farm worker. So she was someone who was, you know, very poor to middle class, later became middle class, but um, struggled a lot. And so in our household, money was not something you took for granted. We, they weren't good conversations. So I always say that, you know, you, if you don't learn about money at home, you don't learn about it at school, then you don't learn about it and you make many financial mistakes. And I think that's the norm, especially in the United States. Um, we have what is called a racial wealth gap. So um, the wealth gap between white families and black and Latino families is over $100,000 in terms of net worth. And so um, we've been redlined out of many different asset building opportunities um, for a number of reasons. Um, and that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, but the point is that, you know, I grew up very working class, a very sort of um, head to the ground. I had to make my own way. And money was something that I seen as a kind of opportunity, right? So when I thought about money and I looked at people around me, it, I, I always framed it as like, that's money buys opportunity, right? And luckily I was able to, you know, kind of carve my way out. I left home early. I ended up going to school to a junior college and then transferred to UCLA. Um, and my first iteration of myself was I was going to be a journalist. So my dream was to work for 60 minutes in, in New York. And I eventually ended up doing that. And that's how I ended up going to New York. Uh, so I started my career in journalism and um, at some point uh, decided that I was going to go into public policy because I really wanted to be on the other side of making policies and programs that helps people, right? Because even, even early on, I was very focused on how do we close this opportunity gap? which relates to the, the wealth gap, right? Because um, I looked around in my community and I said, people are working really hard, but we're not getting the results. We're not, we're not getting any of the value of that work. And so I ended up um, working in public policy and becoming um, a, a social science researcher, which was a great skill to have and still is a great skill for, for me to have as a founder. Um, and, you know, as a SAS programmer back in the day. <laughs> and then um, I had an opportunity to take those 
skills and run a project called the Human Rights Project of the Urban Justice Center. And this was in um, beginning of 2000. And um, for any of you who remember, this was also the time in which the World Conference, the World Conference Against Racism in South Africa was happening. And it was the first time that the US government was going to get reviewed by the committee um, on CERD. And it's actually one of the few um, conventions that the United States is party to. And so here I am at this great um, crux of opportunity where I was leading an organization that was um, going to submit the first shadow report to the UN um, on sort of essentially what was the state of racial um, affairs in the US. And so I took that opportunity to gather um, over a hundred nonprofits and non-governmental organizations. We submitted that shadow report. We advocated in, on behalf of folks in Geneva. And then I was a delegate to the World Conference Against Racism in South Africa and focusing very specifically on economic, social, and cultural rights. And so um, that was, you know, nice. And then I ended up spending over, you know, really seven to eight years in that space. We came home um, and we took a lot of findings from, from our work abroad. I mean, we, we were doing great work with organizations all over the world, including India. We were at the World Social Forum in India back in, I, I can't remember, it was like maybe early 2000s. Um, we were in Belfast, we were in, um, in Brazil. So just a lot of really great progressive work focused on economic, social, and cultural rights. Brought that back to the US and then worked on a piece of legislation in New York City to hold the government of New York accountable for disparate impact um, and things like benefits, social benefits. And so that was great work. And I remember there was a point in my career, I was in Geneva at the um, Financing for Developing for Development Conference. And there was essentially a bunch of, you know, white men, lawyers, finance guys talking about sort of, you know, how they were going to finance like water rights type things. And I just thought, you know, we need to be on the other side of this table as well. As progressives, women, folks who come from communities that are affected, we need to understand finance. We need to understand how these decisions are made um, so that we can be better solution makers. And so I decided at that point to go um, to law school. Um, I was a single mom. I you know, had a six-year-old at the time. And so it was a big jump for me. I mean, I was 30, I was in my early 30s. And so it was a big career move. And I decided to focus specifically on corporate law. And I made that transition. And I was, because I was so focused on finance, um, I made the best of my, my time while I was there. My first year, I um, was an intern clerk with the chief judge in bankruptcy in the Southern District, which in New York and, and in the U.S. is a big deal. It's basically where all the corporate restructurings happen. So GM, Chrysler, Bear Stearns all went to his courtroom. And so I got to work on those um, cases and then ended up working at the SEC in asset management um, as Dodd-Frank was being rolled out. So this was after the, right after the housing crisis. Um, and ended up doing securities litigation. And just so happens, um, the firm that I worked at, it was a class action securities litigation firm. And we worked on Madoff. <laughs> so that was my first huge case. And pretty much it took a lot of my time for the, almost two and a half years, worked on the Madoff case. So we actually were part of a team that successfully sued JP Morgan Chase on behalf of investors. Um, for that, and then worked on the MF Global case, which was um, a, a big case in the U.S. where John Corzine headed up the Treating House. 
So I just got this a great experience in what we call capital markets, right? I mean, I was on the inside in bankruptcy in the SEC and litigation and really understood how kind of big money is managed, how rich people keep their money, how capital markets work um, from, from everything from the formation to the end and bankruptcy. And I started looking around and saying, okay, who is servicing this market of an emerging market in the US of young, diverse uh, millennials, right? So black, Latino, immigrant, like who's talking to all of us about money? And this was at the time when FinTech was exploding, right? Financial tech services, the unbundling of the bank. And I just, did, I, I didn't see any companies that were specifically focused on this market. Because obviously I'm, you know, at that point, I'm like, I know, I know something about money and just in the markets, but I still wanted somebody to understand my situation culturally, understand my values, my financial behaviors. They're very different than someone who was, who was brought up with money. And so um, I didn't find that in the market. And at that time, LearnVest, which has already been acquired and it was a success, um, they had raised like $90 million. And I just did a cost benefit analysis. And I was like, okay, so I can stay here and work all my life and, and then be very happy. Um, obviously it was a big deal to even be a lawyer and be a securities attorney. Um, but you know, there's such an opportunity out there. I mean, you know, if you raise 90 million, you sell uh, your company and she ended up selling that company for 250 million. That's just money. You'll, that's incredible amount of money. And the more I looked, the, the less I seen of people that looked like me in technology. And that also was disturbing because what is happening right now is the technology gold rush just like you had the gold rush back in the turn of the century, technology is the new gold rush and we are not there. We being women, people of color, immigrants, we are, I mean, especially Latino immigrants, which by the way, make up half the, the population in the state of California and yet are not represented in the tech revolution that's happening. And so that's problematic. And so I said, you know what, if not me, whom? Right, I have this incredible experience as an organizer, as someone who understands human rights, understands this issue passionately, and now has this experience in the capital markets. I have to do something. And so I took that leap. Um, I started the company and the idea was always to bring quality financial advice to the masses, right? How, if someone was to sit down with me 20 years ago, what would they have told me? And that's what I want to digitize to make accessible to everyone. Let's give people a plan. Let's help them cut through the jargon of finance, not be intimidated by it, and to really understand how to plan it and map it out so that you can benefit from the wealth that you're bringing into, into this country. <clears throat> that is phenomenal, Ramona. I think, you know, that is such a rich experience. And, I, and I'm so glad that you started My Money, My Future because as someone who's been in New York, I sort of understand that gap in technology in, in terms of like representing um, people of color. And of course, the first time I was referred to as someone who was of color, it was it was a little bit of a surprise because, you know, you don't right. really come from that space because here, here things are very different. <laughs> but yeah, I could, I sort of said, you know, um, for a minute it felt a little bit weird, but then, you know, I sort of said, you know, let me use this as a tool to empower, you know, the people around me. And that's how, we you know, we started the Finlet project. And I sort of like, you know, you just said 
that people's financial behavior is so different depending on the space that they come at, you know, from, right. from the background that they've had, the way they've been raised. So what is it that you've noticed? And this is something which is so fundamental because when we tell people that financial literacy is also about financial attitude and behavior, which forms a larger mm. part of the whole, you know, ecosystem rather right. than just learning and investing. And which is, I think, you know, that's the first hurdle. So how is it that in shaping up my money, my future, what are some of those key key challenges that you've noticed people face? And what are some of those few tips like, you know, of, of the book tips that you sort of suggest people to get on with their financial literacy journey? Yeah, absolutely. So when um, we explain our company, for example, to investors, we're always talking about the emerging market in the U.S., um, anybody that's looked at the demographics knows that it, by 2040, the U.S. is going to be minority majority, right? And there are commonalities and, and amongst people of color. And um, granted, there's different sort of experiences and, and histories, but overall, there is a, a sense of community as people of color in the U.S. that, that in some ways is... Um, bound together by sort of lack of opportunity. Like there, we understand that we're not necessarily represented. We understand that we're not doing as well financially, right? So I think those are things that, that bind us around a common mission. And so when we talk about how we... Um, when we talk about how we approach finance for communities of color, but particularly millennials, I think it's, there's a couple of assumptions that we make. And these are the assumptions that other companies don't, don't take into consideration is that our value sets. And I think this is true amongst most immigrant communities is that, that be, that, you know, wealth, wealth building is not just about you. It's about your family. It's so we talk about in the context of family and community. Right. Because when we think about that, it's not just about me being rich. It's about, OK, me being rich because I want to take care of my family. I want financial security. I want my community to feel good. I want to be a philanthropist. Right. Those are so family and community are core to your value system. So that's one. Two, when you think about just even strategically how retirement works in the U.S., um, I would say that most white families think about retirement and they're like, okay, I'm going to take care of myself so I don't become a burden to my children. So that's really different because for most immigrant families and even those like myself, where I'm not an immigrant necessarily, but obviously I come from an immigrant family, you're not a burden. We don't think about our family as a burden. Right. So the when I always tease Latinos, I was like, when um, when you're Latino, like the idea is that you, your parents help you go to school and put you through school so that you take care of them when they're older. That's 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 the retirement plan is that you're going to take care of them. And, yeah, it's, and it's true. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. In almost every other country. And so when you think about immigrants in the U.S., right, I mean, they're coming from Latin America, they're coming from India, they're coming from places that that almost have the same ideals around family. Um, and so when when you think about how you save for money or how you invest, that's a really different conversation. Estate planning is a different conversation. And so that's something that we incorporate. We also recognize that um, as, as, as families and communities that haven't necessarily trusted inst um, financial institutions for a lot of very good reasons, there's a big trust issue, right? And so that's something that we, you know, take head on, right? Is that, look, 
we get it. There's people out there who are trying to steal your money and take your money and they'll rip you off. We are not one of them. And here's why, right? So I think bridging that gap is really important to be a trusted advisor in your in this space is really important because I'm not someone from outside the community. I am inside the community. I am the community. And so I think that in and of itself is um, is kind of gold when it comes to like the marketing and being able to build trusted relationships. Um, and then I think the other thing is understanding the nuances inside families. Um, and I think only if you're in them, can you understand them? <laughs> I mean, I again, I can give you a couple of, of examples um, in particular for like Latino communities. We always um, joke when we talk about credit and managing your credit and taking care of it. Um, you know, I tell young women, it's like, do not be co-signing a loan for a car for your boyfriend, right? That's a financial responsibility. But it's something, again, because I know us, right? Or Latinos, for example, and a lot of immigrants in the U.S. will do this too. They don't like debt. Like debt's a bad thing. The problem is that debt's not always a bad thing. Debt has to be managed. There are certain kinds of debts that are bad. But debt in and of itself is not bad. Most business owners have debt and that's how you leverage, right? It's leverage, not debt. Um, and so, you know, we'll see people, for example, buy a car with cash. It's a terrible, terrible decision to do. It's a, it's a depreciating asset. You're using all that cash that could be put in the market to make money rather than and putting it in a depreciable asset. I mean, those, those are very fine nuances, right? And that's what I'm talking about though, when we're out there trying to build a company that speaks directly to a market. And I think that's what's different about what we do. And there's no amount of money that the JP Morgan chases of the world can spend to do that authentically, right? And that's the key is that authenticity is really the new currency in marketing. Wow, that is that is so true, Ramona. I sort of resonated with it at multiple levels, and I so agree. Yeah, that is that is just that some perception of money that people have, and sometimes it's so challenging for them for that whole you know perception to change and for them to tell you know. And sometimes it's because of trust. It's also because of the right. trust. You know, if you tell them you put money back into the system, invest, you know. Because a lot of people think that it's bad. And then, you know, it right. takes for here. That's a huge challenge I face here in India, you know, telling people that, you know, investing in the market is something which is good because for such a long period, it's been conceived as gambling. So that yes. is that is something, yeah, yes, I, I sort of agree with. Yeah. And, you know, I thank you for putting that across. Um, another aspect which I've noticed has touched base upon most recently because of, of course, of, because of the pandemic is this, you know, idea of financial fragility, where people yes. have started feeling vulnerable because a lot of them have lost jobs, you know, they're trying to earn money on the side, but things are not going really, really well for them. So what are your thoughts on, you know, how can we incorporate some of the lessons that we learned recently? Because you would agree that markets keep, you know, things keep going up and down and this cycle sort of re re reappears every, you know, decade or so. So what are some right. of those key lessons from financial fragility that you've sort of, you know, learned in your, your elite career? And how can we incorporate them into building a more sustainable next generation, which is sort of a little bit more financially secure? So I have a six-year-old, you know, what is it that we can give them? <laughs> a little bit more secure in terms of the next 20 years right um well it's it's interesting so this question i think go um is a nice entry point into your last question um, my favorite books are people that i follow 
Um, I'm a big uh, fan of Nassim Talib, who wrote Black Swan and and also wrote Anti Fragile. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. a huge fan. I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge fan girl. Um, but but I I literally walk around with the Anti Fragile book as almost like a sort of a theoretical bible, right? It's and the reason I'm saying that is because part of the idea of being anti-fragile is that you're not, you actually become stronger when things happen, right? You learn, your body learns, your mind learns, your, you, you learn from hardship, essentially. And I do think that that is a very important thing, concept, especially for folks who didn't grow up with money, who don't have money, who don't have, you know, financial security. So, and part of that is, is the planning, right? So expecting a certain level of like, yeah, it's not always going to be good. How do you save for the future? How do you, so having a plan and it helps you to be in control of when things do happen. Um, and so I have another little quote um, that I always talk about how insurance as much as I'm, you know, like, look, insurance is one of those really seedy products oftentimes, but good insurance used in the right way, um, it allows for an emergency not to become a crisis, right? So I think about, for example, in America, a lot of, a lot of people of color don't use insurance at all. It's kind of like, why would I pay for something that I'm not going to use, right? It's a kind of a foreign concept almost. And, but I, but I always tell people, like, that's a thing. If you can't afford to buy everything in your house, if something happens and it burns down, then you need insurance because otherwise that emergency becomes a crisis because now you have nothing versus spending five, $10 a month. And especially now with the emergence of InsurTech, it's, it's lowered the price to cover that, to make sure that you never have to face that, right? So planning, I think is one of the biggest things that we can like, is a security to have a little bit more control so that you're aware and to plan for those, those dips. The market's always gonna dip. There is always going to be something every 10 to 12 years that's going to happen that you didn't see coming. And I, and much like Nassim talks about, you don't wanna to try to predict what's gonna happen. Don't do that. Just be anti-fragile, start to build into your ethos, into your plans that helps you, you know, go along. For example, um, I think about, I just had a conversation before this one on a podcast with um, some young women who were talking about how they got, they, they got freaked out when, when the markets turned down in March during the beginning of COVID and they sold stock, right? And I thought, see, that's the difference, right? I went in and bought a bunch of stock because that's what, when, when you think, when you look at the big picture, you're like, okay, everything's on sale. Let me go in and buy it now. <laughs> And I've now had an, a very good return on my investment in over the last seven months, right? Because the markets do return. And luckily I've been around, right? I was there when Bear Stearns crashed. I, I, those were real big, scary market moments. This is not, right? I mean, this is going to pass. Even the thing that happened last week, everyone's talking about the GameStop and, you know, all of the, the, the craziness that happened last week. Um, but I think being anti-fragile is about not being scared to take risk, one, and understanding that risk can be mitigated. And I think as women in particular, we are the household CFOs, right? At the end of the day, women are the ones that are responsible for our children and making sure that people have, there's food on the table. 
we have uh, we generally are better investors. I mean, and that's there's actually a lot of data on this, right? Because we take calculated risk, right? What happened last week were two boy groups fighting each other on a playground, right? <laughs> right. Uh, I, I we would. We would. I mean, yeah. There was. There was no reason for it. It was no rhyme or reason for it. <laughs> Um, but, and, and I think that that's how we should be approaching our future generations. Like now just teaching them about money earlier, talking about money, money should be just as important as anything else in our lives. Right. And because it's, and this is a really important point is that money is a means to an end. Money is not the end. Not the end. Yeah. It's a means to an end. And so everyone, ha and this comes back to that, your money personality. What is your end game? What do you want? Do you want to live a bling lifestyle? Do you want to just have financial security? Do you want to have a business? Do you want freedom? Right? Those are all possible with money. If you play your cards right and you do the right things to plan that, that kind of lifestyle out. Um, and I think the more you understand it at an earlier age, like what is it that's going to make you happy? Because at some point, money plateaus, right? I mean, you can, I think there is a number of like half a million dollars. And at that point, you kind of buy everything you really want. And at, at, no, there's no additional amount of money that makes you happier, right? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't go out and if you want to build a huge business, that's great, obviously. But the the means to an end i i know that like i have a number it's like look if i don't go past that number that's fine this is what i really want in life right and then so okay so then how do i plan my financial resources and strategies to accomplish that thank you for putting that ramona because you know there, there's just these are so many times when i tell people and of course we talk to them about uh planning and you know filling in their goals you know building a goal sheet and that is such an underrated exercise, you know. Sometimes you have to keep telling people, you know, please do it, please do it, because it's really going to help you have a vision. You know, it's just about, you know, determining a vision and how much do you need to set it aside. So in the beginning, right. you might feel that, you know, that you, you're saving enough and it's going to be enough for all the goals. But once you put, you know, pen and paper to it or today, like, you know, Excel sheets to it, you right. realize. And that's how I realize because you agree. I agree. Here in India, insurance is sort of thought as an investment. People put away money in insurance thinking it's an investment. And when, when tragedy struck us and we calculated, it was coming to some 2% return. So it was like stark. And the minute you sort of say, oh my God, I've been doing this wrong all this while. So thank you for putting yeah. that across. Uh, you already touched base on anti-fragility and that is I have nothing <laughs> Nicholas Taleb and fooled by randomness oh, too. It's just such it. an amazing, such an amazing concept. But just yeah. one parting thought or some inspirational movie or book that sort of continues to inspire you as a parting thought, uh, Ramona, please. Oh God, let's see. I yeah, I don't get to watch as many movies as I as I want these days. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh God, I, I I mean, besides Nassim, I think he's the only one I really read all the time. Oh no problem. <laughs> so let's stick with let's stick with Nassim Nicholas Talib for this one. He's, yeah, he's the anti fragile. 
Yeah, it's yeah, the anti-fragile one is really good. Yeah, and yet very simple, you know, very fundamental, but so powerful. So I think that is such a beautiful concept. And thank you so much for lighting that up for us. I think, you know, yes. I'm going to put the link to anti-fragility over here. It's just, it's just amazing. <laughs> awesome. And of course, you know, the link to My Money, My Future. Thank you so much, Please. Ramona, for your time. Thank we, you. I, I could, I'm just like so excited to have an opportunity to speak to you. And thank you so much, so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and look forward to future collaborations. Absolutely. Thank you so much.